Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you are in the world. I'm Sam I am. Welcome to the Lifeboat Livestream Bitcoin Debate Edition. I uh, go out all the time on Twitter and I see people kind of saying very bullish things about Bitcoin. And I always end up, you know, asking them, hey, you want to come on and debate me? Because I have a more pessimistic view. I see some risks and things. And well, Pierre has finally, uh, trying to figure out which, how I want to bring him up here, has finally uh, taken me up on the offer to come on and debate. Pierre, welcome to the show. I appreciate you being here. How are you today? Thank you. Thanks for having <laughs> me on. Always, always happy to debate. Okay, good deal. Good. How are you? Oh, let me fix some things here real quick. Okay, so we haven't talked about structure or anything. Um, I'm happy to kind of launch into like a little introduction on what I see as some of the risks, some of the problems and things, and then we can drill into, uh, you know, sp specifics of these. Um, I, I'm looking forward to this. Uh, you know, I'm always open to changing my position and so forth. Uh, I think we're both probably going to walk away learning a little bit from this discussion as well as our respective audiences. Um, does that sound good to you? Do you want to you want to start us off or say anything first? Uh, no, we can launch into it. Um, I guess we, we, we should tackle one one topic at a time. That's that's the only ground rule I'll set because otherwise it's it gets a crazy tough to, uh, Yeah, yeah. Yeah. To juggle everything. OK, good deal. Um, all right, let me give you my overview, uh, and I think that will kind of set the tone. So uh, when I look at Bitcoin right out of the gate, it is an amazing innovation. Um, and let me see if I can find a better. Uh, sorry, I'm just going to. Yeah, no, that's probably our best bet. Okay. I see it as a really um, an amazing innovation. It it enabled the, the ability to transfer value with anyone around the world without a third party uh, intermediary, without getting permission. It created a decentralized network um, that is permissionless, meaning anybody can join it and participate in the network. You can verify, uh, you know, by running a node and so forth. Um, at the same time, I see it as uh, I, I would almost call it the Napster, and I don't know what your reaction is going to be to that, but the Napster of digital music, because, uh, you know, just like Napster was this great idea that took the power of the internet and really invented this whole idea of peer-to-peer -peer, uh, interactions where we, you know, cut out the middleman kind of thing. It had some early design flaws, and I see the same kind of thing with Bitcoin. I mean, we look at uh, the white paper, and it's the, it's right there in the title, peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash, and I think it's failed in that because it's failed to scale. Um, and I think, you know, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of projects out there, and today we have a lot of different experiments going on with funding development, and I think that's really a key thing that Bitcoin seems to have gotten wrong. Uh, because they're, the, the nature of how it was created and how it was invented and kind of uh, airdropped on humanity, if, for lack of a better uh, way to express that, there was no mechanism to fund development. And, you know, I look at some of the other, the other experiments going on out there, and I think there are uh, projects that have learned, you know, from having that high insight uh, to be able to 
come up with a more sustainable funding model. And I think what we have from, or at least in the Bitcoin ecosystem today, is a lot of the layer two providers doing the funding for layer one. And of course, their incentive is to make sure layer one never scales because you wouldn't need layer two. And so in that process, you know, what I hear from the Bitcoin maximalist community is, well, Lightning Network solves that. Well, Sam, uh, you know, we've got all these other layer two solutions. We can wrap Bitcoin now and we can move it around on all these other networks that are faster. And that's how we address the scaling problem. But to me, when I hear that, I'm like, okay, but you've compromised uh, the third party intermediary, right? And so in this whole process, what have we really accomplished here? Have we just traded one master for another? And then there's issues with, um, I think the government could still, nobody's gonna kill Bitcoin. I mean, let's be real here. It's not going to go away anytime soon. Uh, but I think there are things that like the US government or Europe or you know some of these financial powers could do to force divestiture, um, put more rules around it to make it harder for, the, for their citizens to use. Um, that could negatively affect Bitcoin. I think the whole green initiative stuff that's coming in from the UN and the globalists and so forth uh, also really does not look good for Bitcoin. Um, and and I, I also hear kind of uh, when it comes to like security, that, that's, that's a thing that maximalists like really like to beat their chest about. We've got this much hash power it's good that it uses this electricity. That's they, a lot of them want to tell me that's the value in Bitcoin and, uh, you know, in comparison to gold, especially because they both have to be mined. That That's insane to me. Um, the fact that miners are draining out such a huge chunk of change uh, every month to, you know, keep the network running. I think that runs into problems, you know, far down the road, but eventually it's going to be there is, you know, how does this network sustain itself over the long term? Um, let me think what else, you know, then there's the, the incentives around mining that centralized mining in places with um, cheap power. And I think that presents an opportunity for a 51% attack. And that's something we can dive into a little bit. Um, so, yeah, you know, like I see all of these things and I think that it's going to go up in price in the in the short term. But again, to me, it always comes back to utility and what is the use case? You know, Bitcoin uh, maxis will sit there and tell me over and over that it's uh, the store of value and that's the use case. But I'm like, what value is it storing? You know, I got into it with a... Um, a Bitcoin maximalist on Twitter. I don't know if you saw it. This was like right after we set this up uh, to kind of flush this out a little bit. And I'm like, look, if it's copper, as long as people are using copper for jewelry or copper for plumbing or copper for roofing, there's always a market for that copper. But with Bitcoin, a lot of the demand, and, and I point this out as well, when I see a post about Bitcoin on Twitter, it's always buy it now look how much grayscale just bought look how much these guys just bought that's more than is being mined so therefore price can only go up it, it reeks of a tulip mania to me so i think i've blabbed on for long enough do you want to 
Do you want to say anything to that in response, or you want to take a specific issue wherever you want to go? Uh, yeah, so um, I, I wrote down some some notes as you were talking, and we okay. can go uh, and and discuss uh, from kind of from the top. Um, so I mean, first of all, obviously, I, I agree with you that that Bitcoin is an amazing innovation. Uh, you know, with uh, being permissionless and and all of that. Um, so I I take issue with the Napster metaphor um, okay. or analogy because uh, it. To me, it's more analogous to BitTorrent, right? By by its design, um, but let's just take it at face value that that BitTorrent itself also has flaws, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, you were getting to the point that um, the the title of the white paper is about peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash, and that Bitcoin not scaling has um, betrayed that vision in a sense, or um, at least has um, prevented it from from actualizing, um, and there I think that you know we we get into the question of of Bitcoin's block size limit and uh, that that whole debate, which is a debate that it actually started with um, the first email to Satoshi. Uh, so Satoshi emailed the the Bitcoin white paper to the uh, crypto mailing list. Um, and the first response he got was about scaling. And so uh, Bitcoin scaling has uh, been talked about uh, from day zero um, as, as being an issue. And uh, it, I, I do agree, actually, that it is an issue uh, that we got to think carefully about. Um, now, why did Satoshi put the block size limit, right? It's because he had concerns theoretical concerns because this didn't this had not actually happened up to that point but he had concerns that um, a miner would create a block that is so big that it would cause uh, nodes on the network to crash um, and so it would be a form of a denial of service attack okay uh, so I, I'm assuming we agree on the facts there that, that that's why he said that now um, that hadn't actually happened, so it was it, it was a preemptive, um, you know, a limitation that Satoshi put on uh, the code base back, let, I think, 2010. Let me jump in um, real quick. And back then, blocks. Yep. Okay, so I, I agree with what you're saying. There needs to be something there. Um, at the same time, I think it's fair to also admit that, like Satoshi figured everybody would be mining these on their GPU at home and never really foresaw this mining industry springing up around Bitcoin and uh, centralizing mining in key locations around the world. I think that was something that he kind of completely, he, she, they missed the boat on. Would you agree? That's or? fair. <laughs> I, um, I, I would, and, and we'll talk about mining centralization, but that's different than uh, the block size limit. Okay. Right, because yeah, I agree. The the issue of the block size limit would apply even if everyone, computer, um, and, and so uh, even even in the even in the best case scenario, you know, one CPU, one vote, uh, one person, um, large blocks, and you know, it was it was worse back then in 2010 because fiber optic internet was not as widely available as it is today. Right. Um, and nevertheless, even today, 
So just to kind of um, benchmark the conversation, today, if you have a fiber optic connection, all right, 1,000 megabits per second or whatever it is, um, it takes you approximately four to six hours to uh, download the entire Bitcoin blockchain and process it on your kind of commercial grade uh, desktop computer. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that would be on a pretty high end computer, right? Yeah. Um, uh, but um, if you're, if you don't have uh, that kind of internet connection of a fiber optic connection, um, it could take you weeks, months, Mm -hmm. It might also just not be feasible. You might just never be able to catch up, um, both because some ISPs have caps on how much you can download, um, and uh, other ISPs just don't have the the speed to to enable um, you to keep up with the blockchain or catch up. So, already just from, so this is different though than Satoshi's concern, right? Satoshi's concern was about. A, a singular block being so big that uh, it causes some kind of buffer overflow or some kind of um, bug to get tripped in in the Bitcoin software and to to cause uh, disruption to to the network. Um, but I think that um, his theoretical concern is valid uh, when we look at uh, what happened, for example, in, I think it was in 2013 with the Berkeley DB bug, um, where um, a, it, it wasn't a block that was larger than the block size limit, but it was a big block and um, it did cause uh, an issue there. Um, and so then the, the second question I think is, all right, let's say we agree that there should be a block size limit. Then what ought it to be, right? Uh, that, that to me is, the point of controversy. Um, although I, I don't know, do you think that there should just not be a block size limit at all? I, I, I wouldn't even know. Um, I, I hadn't even considered it long enough to like form an opinion. I, I just, I, I'm very familiar with Roger Ver and his whole idea of, you know, let's kind of experiment with that. Um, does it need to be it, it? I think you're making a valid point when you say, you know, there's a, a security concern for block overflow bugs and, and exploits and so forth. Uh, and that it needs to be in line with some form of uh, today's processing bandwidth capacities and, and so on and so forth. Uh, going back to what you were saying about uh the being able to download the whole blockchain well that's another experiment you know i, I don't want to make this about xrp but with the xrp ledger they're writing all of the addresses in every block so you literally don't don't have to have the full history of the blockchain so i think that's another uh let's thing that's been experimented with since uh the bitcoin innovation that shows okay that may not have been the best option and i know there's been various proposals to sort of create a uh like a placeholder block that you can start from to build the blockchain i don't know where those have gone um but again i you know like bitcoin did it first they didn't have the um uh the benefit of high insight and and seeing how these things play out i think some of these newer blockchains do and i think that's why they're choosing 
uh, proof of stake or consensus based algorithms because they're superior and they offer a better compromise. And it's it's all about compromise. Uh, you know, and I think Bitcoin made some early decisions that may not have been the best ones is kind of my view. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, it is about um, compromises, trade-offs uh, between different uh, properties. Um, the The issue I take with not downloading the whole history mm -hmm. is uh, one from a financial auditing perspective. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a financial auditor. I got my bachelor and master in financial accounting at UT Austin and uh, worked at Deloitte. And when you're auditing a ledger, um, it's, it's not enough to audit, audit today's balances uh, because what you have to do is you have to audit the history of the ledger. And you, because the reason you have to do that is that you could have a bug that creates ledger entries at T3 and then deletes those ledger entries at T6 and, um, and then you're at T10. And to you, it nets out to zero, but uh, there indeed was, um, you know, a uh, financial fraud. Unauthorized borrowing. Um, between T3 and T6. And so, or, or anything, you know, uh -huh. it, it could be a, any kind of irregularity in the ledger. And it could be intentional or it could be a bug. Or it could be that they accidentally created units and then the developers quietly plugged it. Um, so from a financial auditing perspective, uh, in order to have the highest assurances, you have to audit the entire ledger. And that's why I do think it's important that Bitcoin maintain that design because the point of being permissionless and of being decentralized is that you don't have to trust a third party, mm -hmm. right? And so if you have to trust that others are auditing the full ledger for you, uh, and that your software is just going to take a certain snapshot of balances at a certain point in time, um, then uh, you know it kind of gets back to to the question of um, are we actually you know doing something uh, new or have we traded one master for another? Um, so and, okay. and so that's that's why you know the yeah uh, let me let me jump in there um, because. You know, in practice today with Bitcoin, it's all moving to layer two. So we've we've really lost that core principle, in my view. I mean, yes, you can use it to transfer money, but A, the government stepped in and KYC AML pretty much everything. So they know whose accounts are whose and can track that through their databases. Um, and B, if you want to use layer one, you're going to be paying, uh, you know, anywhere from five to $50, who knows what it'll be, you know, with continued adoption and utility. Um, you can move money through the traditional SWIFT system in those kind of time frames and at those kind of prices. So like I look at that and I see, see, yeah, that's the idea, but in practice, that's not what's happening. And as a kind of a counter to what you're saying about being able to audit the full blockchain, um, the Bitcoin approach is, well, we have to have small blocks so that everybody can download it so that it's still, you know, a reasonable thing to do for people um, it, so that we can audit. And I think uh, the consensus approach is more of, uh, well, we can make the blockchain bigger so that everybody doesn't have to uh, have the full history 
but the the capability still exists for specialty firms that specialize in audits to have that full history and be able to you know crunch the numbers as you used to do and so that uh takes the burden off of the network participants puts it on those special use cases and the people that need those special use cases uh and i don't think i don't think it's a either or i think it's um you know it's i i see it as a better compromise i don't know i'll leave turn it back to you yeah um i guess from my perspective um centralized auditors specialized auditors um are effective they mm -hmm. are that's true um but uh, at times they also fail right and so that's why we had enron uh, that's why we had worldcom mm -hmm. uh, we've had uh numerous um accounting scandals in the u.s but also abroad if you look into all of the um uh academic audit research of uh looking into um, failures of audits from centralized third parties. But I would say so Brock, that's where, um, I, in my mind, while I, I, let me jump in real quick. I would say the difference there is the audit data is still uh, in the public domain. So you're talking about situations where audit teams have failed, but that's been in a closed environment where the data wasn't publicly available. If somebody on Reddit wants to create a, a subgroup and audit the blockchain in uh, you know parallel to what some uh, audit firm is doing, they would still be able to do that. So I, I think there's a, a difference there that that's material. So, um, but what you're describing is the Bitcoin model, where you can independently audit the ledger yourself. Um, well, Bitcoin or consensus. What do you mean by consensus? Uh, I mean, the best example that I'm most knowledgeable about would be XRP. Uh, there are nodes out there that run a full history, uh, you know, aside from the bug in the early days with the that lasted a couple days, uh, that have that full history that you can download from them and get a copy, uh, and then you can, you know, run your own node and keep on going forward. Uh, so, like, I think that's available for both. And I think what Bitcoin's done is say, we have to have small blocks for the users to keep the full history. And I think what consensus has done is say, it's okay for the blocks to get big. Uh, specialized parties can keep the full history. It's still publicly available if they choose to make it that. Uh, and, you know, somebody's always, somebody's going to. Uh, and then, you know, that way, people don't have to download the full history to join the network and start contributing. Well, you don't have to download the full history to join the Bitcoin network. There are like clients that use um, technologies um, like Bitcoin 158 of, um, uh, to, to avoid having to download the whole ledger. But, um, you know, what, what, what you're describing of, of having these specialized third parties that are, let's call them, you know, archival uh, nodes, <clears throat> the... Um, the issue there, I mean, it's twofold. One is that uh, in in the world of auditing, um, the the client one one of the perennial things that you'll hear from the client is, oh, "We have all the data; it's it's all here." But that doesn't have any um, 
audit value if it hasn't been reconciled, if it hasn't been sampled, and if it hasn't been verified. Um, and so it's it's not enough to have the data. You have to actually uh, do the reconciliation. Um, and, and then second of all, the problem with having um, what, what you're describing is that you're you're creating a situation where it's very easy to pressure those specific archival nodes um, in order to get them to do things differently. Now, what that means, um, that's just going to depend on kind of the the the, um, the specifics of the circumstance. Uh, but in any case, what well, what it could mean is that either they will create more units um, or they will freeze units, right? Like there's all sorts of different things that they can do to a ledger if it's um, centralized enough or not decentralized enough. And the um, problem with uh, having things in that gray area where we don't know if it's decentralized enough, right? Or we don't know if it's too centralized. We won't know until it's too late. And at that point, um, it's important to look at the history of, of monies where um, it's just a long series of folks maintaining ledgers, building up credibility, and then cashing out on it by uh, debasing the currency mm -hmm. and by causing unexpected dilution of the monetary unit, unexpected inflation. And so to, to me, the, the, the philosophical approach of Bitcoin of saying, hey, we're going to make it so that everyone can, um, anyone could run a, and that's not even true anymore. It's not the case anymore that anyone can run a Bitcoin node. Mm -hmm. um, you have to be in a specific geography where you have good enough Correct. internet access to, yep. to be able to do it. So there are already people who are saying that blocks should be smaller than they currently are. Um, and that right now we're, we're kind of in a danger zone. And so um, that's, that, you know, in terms of from a, investor's perspective or from someone who wants to save money for the long term, um, they want to find a system where they can actually have the strongest possible assurances about future dilution, about future monetary policy, and to have the strongest credibility of that future monetary policy. And in terms of trade-offs, um, you know, if to, to them, they would rather hold an asset that is going to have volatile transaction fees and strong assurances on the monetary policy, then hold an asset that has very stable, low transaction fees, where the assurances on the monetary policy are anything less than the other one, right? Uh, anything less than the credibility of Bitcoin's monetary policy, um, it, it, it kind of makes it a... Uh, unable to compete, uh, frankly, and, and that's what's reflected in, in the crypto markets. Okay, uh, that's, I, I think you made some great points there. I completely disagree with most of them, uh, so let me see if I can explain why. Um, so first off, we'll go back to consensus. Uh, you, you're talking about the importance of uh, being able to audit and reconcile. And in my view, that happens every, and I'm, again, I'm going to talk XRP ledger. I'm not trying to put XRP against Bitcoin by any means, but it's one I have the most context of. So that's primarily what I'm going to speak of when I talk about consensus. In the case on the XRPL, 
you have every account balance and you have every transaction since the last block or since the last ledger close is what it's called. Uh, and if you go to that previous ledger, same thing, every account balance and every transaction. Uh, so in essence, in my mind, at least, that is your reconciliation, that is your audit, and it happens every three to four seconds on average. Um, and we're talking about decentralization. Um, I think it's a, a spectrum, and I think a lot of the Bitcoin maximalists, and I would say Andreas is probably the worst about this, puts up this Hobson's choice of either you have Bitcoin or you have Visa, which one do you want? And it's like, no, I, I think it exists on a spectrum. Um, and I think in like the the consensus XRP Stellar uh, use case, they're trying to build utility amongst a broad consortium, different industries, different verticals. Uh, on the XRPL, they uh, kind of publish who they are and let people know this is who we are. There's universities in there. There's uh, banks in there. There's payment processors in there. There's, uh, you know, uh, exchanges, running validators. There's all these different parties with different interests. And I think that creates a different kind of stability, a different kind of check to where one specific group is not going to run away with the network and vote in changes that are detrimental to the other groups. In the case of Bitcoin, um, in some aspects, it's, you know, like with nodes, absolutely, I think the uh, gold standard for decentralization. Last I saw, there were 10,000 around the world. But when it comes to mining, I think that's where it really falls short because of the incentives that were just not really uh, well thought out. And this goes back to Satoshi thinking, we're all gonna be mining Bitcoin on our GPUs in the spare clock cycles and not seeing you know, what was gonna develop. Um, I talk about a 51% attack. Again, you know, I've, I've done it, I don't know if you know this, but I've taken uh, Andreas, a couple of his videos where he's laying out his kind of uh, best case or why Bitcoin's the best. And I kind of tear those apart and deconstruct his arguments. He likes to think that, well, if you want a 51% attack the Bitcoin network, you have to outhash it. And I think because if you're a state government like the Chinese, you could go out and send out troops with AK-47s and people to set up an exploit uh, you could plan it for a certain block. You could 51% attack on the exchanges. You could do a huge short. I mean, look at what happened when the, it wasn't even really a, a double spend on Bitcoin happened. It dropped 30, 35%. That's a huge opportunity. So that could fund the whole thing. You don't have to outhash the network, but because it's centralized in places where you have cheap power, where you have cheap electricity, that kind of state sponsored attack uh, I think is is very plausible. I don't know that they're going to do it because, you know, right now um, they're spending, you know, their monopoly money, the Chinese yuan on the ASICs, which are made in China, the powers made in China, the buildings, the Internet, all that's paid for in yuan. And then what the CCP gets in return is this asset that's liquid in markets all over the world and the perfect money laundering vehicle. So like you know, they're incentivized to keep it going. Uh, but I think it's short-sighted to not acknowledge that as a risk. What, what do you think? What are your thoughts hearing that? 
I'm very curious. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and we'll get to mining. Uh, I've, I've got it here on the, on, on the notes. Um, so I, I want to go back to what you were saying about Andreas and uh, kind of the, the spectrum of decentralization. Perfect. And really from the, the, the issue uh, with um, kind of having such a spectrum uh, is that we have to look at it from the perspective of someone who's going to hold this asset for a long period of time. And uh, for, so because, you know, for, for the day traders, for the people trading in and out of positions, they don't care. Mm -hmm. They really don't care at all. And in fact, there are assets, crypto assets exist where they are trading on an exchange and the underlying network doesn't exist, right? It, it's defunct. Uh, it's no longer clearing blocks. And the so ship, the yeah. short-term traders, okay, I get it. They're not, that's not what they're interested in. But, mm -hmm. yeah, but the, um, in terms of folks who are, um, long-term oriented. And the reason they are important is because they're, they're the reason that an asset is going to accrue value over the long-term at all. Um, because mm -hmm. if they don't have the confidence in it, then they're going to be, um, they're not going to hold it and that's just going to uh, cause the value to collapse. Um, and so already, if we look at, you know, you mentioned the, the bug in the ledger and XRP that, you know, in the early days, but let's just set that aside. Um, and and kind of you know look at the the reconciliation every three seconds. Um, the you know I I personally have applied my financial auditing skills to audit the Bitcoin ledger, and I found zero discrepancies. And so it was fully tied out. Um, you know, no rounding errors, no nothing. Mm -hmm. um, and that's really what gives me long-term confidence in, in Bitcoin. And I, you know, that that's something that um, other long-term savers, as I call them, um, are looking for. And so uh, it might be the case that an asset like XRP has, um, you know, utility other than what I'm talking about, which is the, the low cost of verification. Um, but in terms of folks who are going to be holding it for the long term, um, that's that's really key. And so that's where I think that talking about the spectrum is it's fine, right? Like, okay, so there are things that are less decentralized than Bitcoin. I I think though, from a saver's perspective of someone who wants a stable monetary policy and a credible monetary policy, that any compromise on that um, immediately causes uh, the the other asset to be less than Bitcoin for long-term savings. I get that it might be better for other use cases, um, but if we're thinking about actual value accrual through the cycles, um, then it's really about long-term savings being the key use case uh, that is going to drive that fundamental uh, value accrual. Okay. Um, and I, I disagree there. I think kind of where I see you going is Bitcoin's use case is really speculative demand from retail. And, and I would even add corporate is moving in there. Um, and, and no doubt that's going to drive the price up. Um, I think the key difference with something like XRP is the, the value is driven by you, by its utility, by the companies and businesses that want to want to use it to improve their business process. And to me, it goes back to what is a store of value? 
what makes gold a store of value? Well, it's uh, the dentists who are using it because it's the best material for fillings. It's the uh, PC board manufacturers are using that are using it for its electrical properties, uh, and you know, and all and the aerospace and everything else. Um, that ensures that there's always a market with this idea that well, Bitcoin's a store of value. Again, to me, it comes back to what value is it storing? Uh, that's it, it's, and I'm not trying to say this to as a dig or anything, but to me, that just screams tulip mania. Uh, you know, the the price can only go up, and until until there's not retail buyers, and then the, it crashes hard, and like that's the risk that I see. Uh, I, I want to. I'd love for you to address that, but I want to just quickly mention as far as audit goes, you know, I think um, there's, you're definitely making a point that it's probably easier to audit the Bitcoin blockchain than it is something like the XRPL just for the sheer volume involved and the number of records and, and the data that you're moving around. Um, I wouldn't say that it's impossible, you know, putting the, the lost le uh, ledgers aside, but I also think that you can rely on uh, another institution or another subject matter expert or a group of them to have to come out and say, stake their reputation. Hey, I've done an audit. This thing checks out. Uh, so to me, that's a trade off that I think is a fair one to make um, that, that, you know, kind of fits into our, our philosophical difference. So when I look Yeah, I guess I, I, I'm I'm a student of history and a, and a student of the financial markets, and it's just every time we've tried that of trusting institutions and their reputations, ultimately what happens is that the incentive to cash out on the reputation by debasing the currency is utterly overwhelming. And even the best institutions, what happens to the best institutions? They get taken over by crooks. Um, who want to, uh, you know, vandalize the reputation in order to profit off of it. And so that's where anything that is, um, you know, based on trust like that is vulnerable to, to being taken over. But um, I, you know, I, I want to get back to the question of the, the block size limit, because, you know, the, to, to say that Bitcoin has failed to scale, I think that um, you'd, you'd have to back that up by data. And the reality is that um, the Bitcoin network cleared more data this month than it has in its entire history in, in any given month. So this month was a record setting month for the amount of data going through the Bitcoin network. And so, um, you know, while it might not be scaling as quickly as you want it to be, um, I, I do think that it's kind of a mischaracterization to say that it's not scaling. Um, especially given that uh, in 2017, there was a soft fork uh, called SegWit, which mm -hmm. uh, did marginally increase the um, block size limit by replacing it with the block weight limit. Um, and so the, the other part of you know, that, that shows is that I think that there will be additional soft forks coming forward uh, that will... Um, enable on-chain, uh, more on-chain scaling uh, for Bitcoin. Um, and, and 
One of those is Taproot that's coming up um, by taking up less data on the blockchain, then we can fit in more transactions. Mm -hmm. um, and it's important to, you know, it, a little bit later we might talk about the, the developers, but the developers, um, they're not intentionally trying to limit Bitcoin, right? The, the problem with what Satoshi did with the block size limit, mm -hmm. here's the problem with how he implemented the block size limit is that to raise the block size limit, we have to do a hard fork, right? We have to kick everyone off the network and force everyone to upgrade their uh, node software. And um, so that is, it's, it, like it's just a non-starter in a non-emergency, which... Well, it's like saying everyone parachute out of this airplane and parachute into this into other the, airplane yeah. that's flying below us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You would only ever do that if there was an emergency. Okay. Never do that if it was like, well, you know, we want to have a few more seats on the airplane. This this other airplane's a little bit bigger, so we're going to parachute out of this 747. It's like, it's insanity. So um, it's not like the developers are, are choosing this. And in fact, I was opposed to increasing the block size limit before I knew that the developers, that any of the developers were. In fact, in 2014, when I was writing against increasing the block size limit, um, the lead developer, Gavin Andreessen at the time, he had the opposite view. He had the view that we should actually do a hard fork to increase the block size limit. So I was at odds with what I thought was a developer consensus at the time because I was looking at it from first principles from my own perspective. And I think that the, um, the, the rejection of um, big blocks, let's say, or two big blocks, I'd say, um, has been driven by users um, more arguably than by the developers themselves. Okay. So, because ultimately, oh, it's the ahead. users, the node operators, that, that will decide what upgrades actually get implemented. So upgrades to the Bitcoin protocol have to always be in favor of the node operators if they are not in favor of them, right? If they're doing a trade-off, a compromise that is not favorable to the node operators, then that compromise just won't happen because you're, the, the, the other party in the compromise is utterly powerless in terms of imposing their views on the node operators. And that's really what makes Bitcoin's dynamics um, so different than any other system that is centralized. But I would say in response to that, um, there's a funding aspect to it because these developers, are, you know, we're not talking like part-time kids in their basement coding away on Bitcoin Core. Um, and the funding, as far as I understand it, is primarily coming from the layer two providers they're incented to only fund things that are going to ensure their existence, just like the the miners are going to, you know, have that same incentive. Um, and I just want to make a quick point about auditing, you know, jumping back to that before we get too far away. You're talking about, uh, you know, the incentives always there to corrupt, you know, the, the reputation for crooks to come in and take over. And you mentioned debasing the money again, but that's the that's one of the innovations. Is the data is public? Anybody can serve as a check to that. As um, uh, and I don't think they they're not going to be able to debase yeah, the the, the ledger. The, 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 data, the dollar, 
the, the data about the dollar and the the uh, fixed exchange rate to gold and, and to silver before mm -hmm. that, that was all public, right? Yeah. The, so it, it doesn't really matter that it's public. It's about someone wants to bust through that trust. What By what operational mechanism can they effectuate their change? And with the dollar, it was about just take over the federal government, right? Uh, mm -hmm. and, and you can uh, bust the exchange rate, uh, the fixed exchange rate, the backing of the dollar. And it's all, in, it was done in public, right? Nixon got on public broadcast television and announced it. But so it doesn't the matter if the data is public. The world backing what him. matters is... That's not, but right, but he, he didn't... He didn't have to shoot anyone to No, but to he make doesn't need happen. to, but he has that in his even back pocket. Him. I mean, if I got up and said we're going to the gold standard, pe people would be like, piss off, Sam. You know, but if uh, the president does, it's going to carry different meaning because he's in charge That's of right. this huge apparatus. Go ahead. That's what I mean. Centralized power. And so that's ultimately what matters is it's not who has the data, it's who has the power. Mm -hmm. And in Bitcoin, node operators have both. They have both the data and the power. Now, on an individual level, the node operators are powerless, right? Because they have to submit to the consensus rules if they don't want to fork themselves off the network. Right. Um, collectively, they have all of the power, but they have no way of coordinating. So that's what makes Bitcoin, um, you know, this this immutable ledger, is that the everyone is um you know sovereign and that means that nobody is sovereign right mm -hmm. because nobody has control over others and so that's really what um it comes down to in terms of uh the data availability versus the uh power to effectuate change but everything you just said there um or to prevent I'm, I, I, as you're saying it, I'm going through and saying, okay, yeah, consensus does that, consensus does that, consensus does that. So I'm not, I didn't hear anything you say that um, consensus doesn't do in a different way uh, that I think provides, you know, we're talking within that spectrum of decentralization that provides sufficient protection because, you know, you have validators that are spread out around the world, different geographies, different governments, You'd be talking, you know, you want to take over the, the, the XRPL, you need to be able to attack multiple countries and multiple companies and multiple industries and persuade all of them that uh, perverting the network is in their best interests. And then you would also, you know, there, you have that same risk that just like you would with Bitcoin, if one group wants to subvert the network for their own purposes, the the rest of the network may not go along with it you know you do have a bit of a hierarchy in uh consensus systems where you have this kind of appointed group and there's all kinds of different experiments being carried out as to well it should be a random group that moves around like with the xx network or it should be a uh you know this static group that stays with stellar and xrp um but those participants are free to kind of reassociate with anybody that they want if they sense that there are some bad actors. So, you know, again, I, I feel like consensus accomplishes those same objectives in a different way. And I, and I think it does it more efficiently. And, you know, you mentioned that the block size was growing 
a little bit, and there have been some improvements. But if you go out into the industry and you look at payment companies, uh, and you know, I'm talking MoneyGram and various payment providers and banks, what they talk about in terms of metrics is transactions. How many transactions did we process? Not, not even the dollar value. They want to know transaction growth. That's their key uh, KPI that they care most about. And as far as Bitcoin goes, there's, there's growth in that area. But again, all on layer two, where you're giving up uh, you know, the third-party intermediary, or you're, you're accepting a third-party intermediary. So. Yeah, I guess um, on the on the first point of um, XRP's um, consensus layer, I mean, I I wasn't um, you know you, you, the 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 idea that um, XRP or Ripple or um, the that consensus layer has a different um, model than Bitcoin's mm -hmm. that was that was your point. So. You know, I, I'm not familiar with it enough to know okay. if it's the same or different, but you were saying that they're different and that they have trade-offs. And so I guess my question to you is that, do you think that those trade-offs are a free lunch, right? And so there's no downsides or, or what are you giving up by having this different model? Um, you're giving up, you're giving up everybody, uh, having an absolute 100% equal say in the network, as you do, uh, I would say, more with Bitcoin. Uh, so there, there's clearly this group of kind of the anointed ones, right? And there's various groups of them. They don't all have to 100% agree. You can have overlap. You can have extras over here on the side that you listen to. Um, and they're free to change that at any time. Uh, but you can join and you you can set up your own validator and run it, but nobody will listen to you until they decide to trust you. So there's a there's an element of trust um, that's built into most of these consensus models that's not there with Bitcoin. But again, it's a um, the the ind individual operate the individuals participants in the network actors in the network get to choose who they trust and freely associate if that if that answers your question and then i guess my second question is to what extent has this model been tested right have has there been a situation where 90% of the xrpl consensus wanted to do something um, but uh, other nodes coming onto the network were able to uh, stop that from from stop that change from happening. No, because uh, none of that's where you have this what's called the UNL Universal Node List. Um, these nodes have grouped together and they don't listen to outsiders until they're trusted, and then they can slowly be kind of brought in to listen to by more and more validators. So, and I think, so, a thing, a, a thing, I mean, to, let to me, me that one more thing here, Brock. Unacceptable. Okay, let me add one more thing, and then I want to hear what you said because I that got cut out. Um, with the with the XRP with validators, there's um, shoot. What do I want to say? Okay, I forgot. <laughs> 
have a button here for that. I don't know if you can hear it. Go ahead with your point. It'll come back to me. Yeah, um, I, you know, to, to me, any kind of um, system, uh, it, it can advertise certain properties, but until I actually see those properties get tested in the real world, um, I, I take it with a grain of salt uh, okay. because, uh, you know, anyone can write anything on the internet. Um, what I want to see is um, assumptions actually get tested in the real world. Mm -hmm and to to prove out the system and mm -hmm. what you're saying is that that just hasn't happened for the xrp ledger i i think that it has um i remembered the point that i wanted to make i i think this goes back to the core difference in what you think of as use case and what i think of as use case um when you have with Bitcoin, you have miners who are participating in the network because of the financial incentive, because of the rewards of mining. With XRP or with the XRP ledger and a lot of these consensus-based systems, they realized and recognized that that was a design flaw in the Bitcoin network because those uh, incentives pervert the, the running of the network. With the XRP ledger, there are no incentives. The fees get burned, so it slowly is um, deflationary over time. And the participants who are running the network do so because they're using it for their business, right? The, the utility is the way that this, um, this digital asset comes in and removes the friction from the payment system, and they benefit from that. So in effect, asking them to sabotage the network is asking them to sabotage their own business and what's in their best interests and to do it in a coordinated way that, you know, the, a lot of the um, proposals and things require 80% of the validators to go along with the change. So, you know, I, I think the, um, the bar is pretty high there again it's not it's not bitcoin but to ask these companies to to short circuit and sabotage themselves and their own financial interests i just don't see that as a real risk well so if we if we take it back to to the history of of monetary economics um you know we have a lot of instances of that um, because there are negative externalities in these systems. So um, the main negative externality is that of inflation. And mm -hmm. I've, I've heard the argument you're making um, in a different context. I've heard it in the context of the Bitcoin miners, okay. where people say, uh, you don't need to run a Bitcoin node because the Bitcoin miners will be honest because if they're dishonest, then they're undermining their, the value of what they're mining, right? Mm -hmm. And the problem with that theory is that there's always an incentive for Bitcoin miners to create more Bitcoin and give it to themselves. And it's mm -hmm. the same thing with any kind of ledger where if you have um, the person who uh, is issuing the currency or who is controlling the ledger, um, that if there's no check and balance on them, then they will give themselves more money. And that's always happened throughout history. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, now perhaps it hasn't happened yet with XRP, but what I'd like to see is for the um, XRP validators, right? The, 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 um, 
the the consensus participants mm -hmm. to try to give themselves more XRP and then to see the check and balance on that, right? Okay. What stops them from doing that? So because if the idea is that it would cause the price of XRP down, right? If that's the idea, then that's just a non-starter because the thing about inflation is that there's a Cantillon effect where the first recipients of the new money benefit it mm -hmm. from it at the expense of everyone downstream of that. And so it's kind of a, a ripple effect, no, no pun intended. Right. And so there's not really an actual check and balance on the market for that. There has to be a check and balance at the consensus level. And in Bitcoin, we have that from people who uh, run Bitcoin nodes who are checking the blocks from the miners and verifying the monetary policy of those okay. blocks and rejecting those blocks. They have the power to reject those blocks if yes. they are creating more Bitcoin. So I, I, the same kind of check can uh, exist. One, it's not one party because you have, uh, you know, a couple hundred validators uh, participating in this process, again, from different verticals with different use cases. Uh, so that's also kind of a check against the bankers modifying the consensus network to benefit them at the expense of the payment processors, for example. Um, let me see. The other thing was... Has that check actually sorry. happened? Uh, I would say, you know, it's an ongoing thing have they, have, because we have universities in there who are doing running validators and, you know, their, their interests are academic. And then you have uh, FIs who have completely different incentives. So the fact that they're there, I think, kind of uh, says that, yes, that's working. But we need to see the clash. So say that again? We need to see the clash, right? We need okay. to see the rubber hit the road. So It's, it's very easy to say, flight, we will be able to land this airplane. Mm -hmm. Okay, so a couple things on that. Um, Number one, there are things that like Ripple uh, amendments that Ripple proposed that have sat unadopted for over a year. There was a checks feature that they want where you could basically like uh, send a payment and then the other party will get to accept it. And they Ripple wanted that for their for their banks. And the validator said, no, we're not doing that. I think it was finally approved like 18 months later. Uh, as far as a check goes against double spend and inflation, as you're asking, in the actual code, the last thing it does is it looks at every transaction and says, does this transaction create more XRP? If so, it fails. Um, and then not only does it fail, but it sets like it sends up a flare, basically. It sets a flag that's like emergency, take a look at this block, something really bad happened here. Um, and that's, again, built into the code. And if you want to change that, you have to have 80% of the validators agree with you in order to change that, which means they're all going against their best interests because what we don't have is speculative demand or uh, you know a, a reward incentive coming from the network. What we have are people running validators, at least in theory, how this is going to shake out is you have network participants who are actually utilizing the network to benefit themselves and their own businesses. I mean, it sounds great, but I, I would just need to see it get tested right, to, okay. for, to have credibility because it's been tested in Bitcoin. So I know that has credibility.
How, how has it been <laughs> tested? Like, I, I feel like it has, you know, the fact that we have these tens of millions of ledger closes is a successful test every three seconds. What makes you say, well, Bitcoin's done that, but the XRP ledger hasn't? Yeah, absolutely. So um, in 2019, I believe it was, um, F2 pool, which is a Bitcoin mining pool, mm -hmm. had a bug in its software that uh, caused it to accidentally create Bitcoin in a block. And they broadcast that block to the Bitcoin uh, network of nodes. And all of the nodes re rejected the block as being invalid. And so what we would need to see to have the equivalent in XRP is for uh, consensus for, for XRPL, for, for one of the validators to uh, try to create XRP um, and or, you know, in some form or fashion, and then that being rejected by the network, right? And um, maybe there's instances of that happening that I haven't heard about, but that's what I'm talking about in terms of actually being tested in the real world. Okay. Um, I would suspect that they are. And I, um, those, the nodes would filter those transactions out if I'm under, you know, there's some people I could ask that would answer this question. They're a little more technically deep than me, but I would say right. the, the nodes would filter that out and it would never even get submitted to the validators just because of the rules and checks that go on, uh, as a transaction is being processed and ordered and then sent to the validators for for validation or ordering, whatever you want to call it. So, yeah, and you know, I would just draw a distinction between would and should. Okay. And this has actually been tried. You know. Like, yeah, yeah. No, that's uh, a and, fair, and so that's where fair point. I really think that from. Um, and then the second point that I would point out is um, in 2017, you had. 90, I think it was 95% of the Bitcoin hash rate signaling for a hard fork mm -hmm. to double the block size limit. Mm -hmm. And this was hugely controversial at the time. Um, and so that, that change was rejected by the nodes, by the, the network of nodes. So to see the equivalent in, in XRP, I would need to see that um, you know, there's 95% of the uh, consensus participants who want something to happen and then other stakeholders stopping that from happening. Because the way that you were describing the, the, the UNL list, like there isn't a mechanism for um, rejecting changes that way. Okay. Why was it rejected? Like... Everybody wanted to do it, but why was it pushed away? I might have gotten distracted. Sorry. So 95% of the hash rate on the Bitcoin network was signaling for this. Okay. Now, this is hash rate that's coming from Bitcoin miners. Yes. Um, and it, it was rejected by node operators. And so okay. there's, because there's different stakeholders in the system that provide a check and balance. Okay. Um, is there is there a, a check and balance on the um, consensus, uh, what you're calling the the XRPL, uh, you know, uh, validators? What's the check on them? So they other than just business reasons, right? Which I think is what you've been. Yeah. So the the way it works, they have a flag that they set, 
Uh, you have to have 80%, I think, uh, setting the flag for a period of two weeks uh, to trigger uh, the, the adoption of the new feature. Uh, as far as what incentives are there, um, again, it goes back to you've got, you've got. I'm not talking about incentives. Okay. I'm talking about actual operational ability to prevent changes from happening, even if 95% of the validators want them to happen. Well, I don't know why you would. I don't know why you wouldn't want that to happen if that's the way the network wants to go. And of course you still have the ability, you know, the people who dis who dissent can fork and start their own network uh, or their own branch, their own fork. So that's the only mechanism. As, as far as I know. Exit. Yeah. That's fair. So, I mean, I just, uh, it highlights that there's just a fundamental difference between these these two models, right? Yeah, I agree. And that there are serious trade-offs between the mm -hmm. two. And to see that there's a free lunch um, in either direction. I don't think there's, there's a free lunch. Um, but, um, okay, we, we, we talked about uh, topic number one, uh, failure to scale <laughs> and, and decentralization. This may be a 10-part series. Enough in my mind. I want to continue. But uh, we can move on. Yeah, we can move on to funding development if you still have the time. Let me check my calendar just to yeah, see. Yeah, I know you got a hard stop um, here pretty yeah, soon. Yeah, I have uh, until uh, in 20 minutes. I tell yeah. you what, let, let's take like maybe... We, we could talk about funding, developer funding. I, um, you know what, let, do you mind if we touch on Tether? That's something that I didn't bring up. Um, I see it as a risk. Uh, I, I know you're probably going to take the counter here. But like I dug into that article with the fish hook through the Bitcoin that was written by, uh, you know, somebody who was getting out of Bitcoin. Um, I know there's some objections, people saying, well, the data is flawed and so forth. But the big takeaway from that, for me at least, is it's not that they're um, like, well, A, they're, they're buying, they're, they're issuing Tether, they're holding loans which are liabilities as the asset you can't have a liability as an i mean you know this stuff and an asset that loan could default the asset can't do that so they're they're backing their stable coin with loans that are issued you know inflationary uh tether printing from them they're uh it also seemed like they're straight up printing tether with nothing backing it and then they're also taking customer funds and and buying Bitcoin with it while the New York AG is suing them and they've been stalling discovery for months and months and months. You don't do that when you're legitimate. I mean, you look at Ripple, the SEC already has their emails, probably because they handed them over voluntarily. Uh, so I, I feel like this thing could be a huge scam that's not going to bring down Bitcoin again. That, that I don't see that happening for a long, long time. Uh, but I think it's a significant risk that should be addressed. What are your thoughts on it? Yeah, I mean, uh, to, to me, I can't comment on the specifics of it. I have no, no inside knowledge. And uh, the reason I don't have any inside knowledge is that I, I can't run a tether node, you know. And so it really, to me, highlights the uh, importance of being able to fully audit 
the monetary unit. Yeah. And um, that's really what makes Bitcoin shine. Yes. And so I always tell people, you know, don't hold USD, don't hold tethers, don't hold euros, hold mm -hmm. Bitcoin if, if you're long term. Now, I realize that there's a lot of short term traders who are using tethers, right, mm -hmm. um, as a stable coin. Um, and that's, you know, that's their prerogative. Um, but I'm I'm a long term guy. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I'm thinking about holding Bitcoin for decades um, and then maybe centuries, you know, I have kids. Um, and so what the traders decide to do day to day um, and the games they want to play, that's just not relevant to me. I hear you. Okay. So you think uh, it almost sounds like Tether could be a serious storm, but you think it's one that Bitcoin will weather over a long enough time frame? Well, Bitcoin has weathered much worse storms than Tethers, right? Yeah. So, for example, Mt. Gox. Yeah, um, that's true. You know, when if it was around during Mt. Gox, that was a nuclear bomb that went off yeah. in the middle of Bitcoin. And people thought Bitcoin was going to collapse and end. Um, but ultimately, the, the problem I think the, that folks get into is when they conflate, um, and this is actually, this is a semantic problem that it's not anyone's fault. Um, Bitcoin refers to two different things. It refers to the unit, BTC, and to the network and to, to the protocol, right, uh, mm -hmm. the, of Bitcoin. And so they conflate those two. And um, they ignore the network and its resilience, and they focus on the exchange rate and its volatility. Yeah. And I, I think that's that's kind of a, a problem, yeah. uh, but it's an educational problem. I don't think it's like a, a market structure problem or anything like that. Yeah. Um, uh, Eric Voorhees made that point a long time ago, and I, I agree with him. There's and Ripple made the same mistake. They named the company Ripple, the token Ripple, uh, network Ripple, and they realized, no, no, we got to separate these things out. And it's just learning curve. Man, I, I really appreciate you coming on and taking the time to have this discussion. I know we didn't get to everything. If you want to do it again sometime, I'd love to. Um, do you want to, did I change your mind on anything at all or educate you at all on XRP? And do you have anything you want to say kind of in closing? Um, you know, I, I'm not the most familiar with XRP, so okay. it was interesting to kind of, um, touch on like, what are the boundary conditions of this network and, and, um, where does it sit on the spectrum of decentralization? Mm -hmm. Um, I think that, uh, we, we should do this again and, and move on to the topic of funding development and also of, of the mining, right. Of yes. the, the electricity consumption and yes. the centralization mining because i think those are two um really important criticisms to to dig into and and to discuss and um i'm, I'm grateful that you know you, you humored me and uh this this was a really nice conversation to have it, it was and like i've been you know tony tone vase calls me uh some kid in his mom's basement uh, I'm blocked by Andreas. I think after he saw my videos, I, I extend this invitation all the time. You're one of the few, the brave who has taken me up on it. I appreciate it. I'm not out to, you know, trash talk Bitcoin or anything, but I, I like, I have these reservations, you know, and I, it's not something that I hold. I know people think I'm crazy for that. Um, but like, I, I, I have to change my mind. Um, I see the points you're making, 
they've swayed me a little bit, but I don't think they've convinced me yet. So I, I definitely want to do this again in a couple of weeks, maybe if that's good for you and we can kind of continue this discussion. I know the, uh, the XRP community is going to be like, Sam, you should have said this and this and that. So I'll have some uh, points and things, I think, to get back to you. And of course, they can good. tweet you as well uh, to continue this. So I appreciate the discussion. Glad we, uh, we got together to do it and uh, wish you the best, Brock. Thank you, Pierre. Pierre. Oh, Brock sorry. Pierce is somebody else. I'm Pierre Oshard. Sorry. <laughs> Thanks for having me on, Sam, and uh, look forward to coming back on as well. Okay, good deal. We'll talk to you later. All right, guys, that's going to wrap it up for this episode. I really enjoyed it. I think it was a great discussion. Um, I'll be back tonight with a bombing run. I'm going to say bye here and end the stream. I appreciate you all for joining, and we'll Catch you next broadcast.